virtual service. Um, we continue looking at God's word, especially in First John, and we're looking at um, the series of First John under the title of "Am I Really a Christian?" In other words, we're trying to examine ourselves with God's Word, trying to put ourselves under the microscope of God's Word to search our hearts and to search our, um, our souls, our profession of faith. What does it look like to, become, to, to be a Christian? What does a Christian really look like, an authentic Christian? That is the question that we are concerned with in these 12 sermons from this, this series. Last week we looked at First uh, John chapter 1, reading from verse 5 up until chapter 2, verse 1 up until verse 2. Today we're looking at First John chapter 2, and we're going to read verse 3 up until verse 11. And we want to look at God's word this morning in, 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 in these um, passages. But before we do that, let me commit our time this morning to, to prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, our Lord and God, as we draw near to you, our deepest concern is that you will speak to us. And in speaking to us, you will sanctify us in your truth. Lord, may we be a people that truly hear you. And in hearing you, truly walk in your ways. Transform our hearts with your word. Conform our will to your will. Make us a people that rejoice in you. Make us a people that truly love you because you have loved us first. In the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the greatest tragedies in the Christian community is, is offering salvation, uh, offering assurance of salvation to people that are not saved. And this is done through the careless handling of the gospel and, and faulty methodologies that people use. It, it is said that when you inquire from someone uh, or some people how they became Christian, you get disappointing answers like, well... I was jobless for many years, and, and, and Pastor so-and-so prayed for me. Then I got a job. Today, I am saved. Or you hear something like, I was sick for a long time, but when Pastor so-and-so prayed for me, I was healed. Now, I am saved. You never hear anything about conviction of sin or believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing in the fact that he died on the cross for your sin and, and, and he was buried um, and, and he was raised again from the dead for your justification. You never hear that. You never hear about turning away from sin and turning to, 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 to faith in Christ. None of that. On the other hand, those who call themselves gospel preachers preach anything but the gospel. They preach about how God will solve your marital problems, how God will solve your financial problems, your health problems. Then after that, after all the, these things, they make an altar call calling people to come and receive, to pray and to receive Christ. Pray a prayer, raise a hand. 
repeat after me. And then after that, they assure them that they are now saved. No gospel presentation. No calling people to repentance. No telling people about the holiness of God. No telling people about the, the, the fact that their sin incurs God's judgment. None of that. What is inevitable about this is that it produces people that have a false sense of assurance and, and false confidence. The people that are comfortably going to hell. When those people are, are scrutinized with what the Bible defines to be a Christian, they fall short in every count. When they come under the light of the word of God, under the microscope of the word of God, they are found to be wanting. Their lives demonstrate no real change. Their lives do not mesh their profession. Who, moreover, their lives don't demonstrate and display love for fellow believers. For the past few weeks, we've looked at the theological test whether we believe the right things. Do we believe that Jesus Christ is God and that he came to make atonement for sin, that he came to deliver sinners from sin and from the wrath of God? We also saw last week the, 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 the moral test. Do we, does what we believe change the way we live? This morning, my focus is on the social test of our faith. Do we love one another? As we read, I want you to look at three identical phrases here. Whoever says, that the identical phrases, um, the word that says, obviously I'm reading from the ESV, the, the, the words whoever says, because those phrases are going to reveal our outline this morning. Let us read from 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 to 11. 1 John chapter, 3, verse, uh, chapter, chapter 2, verse 3 to 11. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says, there it is again, he abides in, in, in him or to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have, he you have heard. At, at, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says, there it is again, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother, is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know what he is, where he is going because darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of God. As I mentioned that the three whoever says statements provide us with a helpful outline for this text. 
Whoever says, I know him, the first one, but does not keep his commandments. Secondly, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk as Jesus walked. Thirdly, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Those two statements are, uh, two of these statements are, are negative, while the middle one is positive. But all three are designed to help us determine whether we have passed the social test of true Christianity. John opens his presentation of the social test by scratching where most religious people itch. He says, by this we know that we have come to know him. By this we, have, we know that we have come to know him. Isn't that the principal question posed by all religions? How do we come to know, to, to know God and how can we know that we know him? The, the, the Greeks generally assumed that one comes to know God through human reason. The mystery religions, on the other hand, so popular in the first century, taught that God is known through divine encounter. The Jews taught that God must be known through revelation. That is that he must reveal himself. But before we decide how we come to know God, we have to determine what it means to know God. For John, knowing God is far from just knowing facts about him or even being able to recognize his fingerprints in the world or in people's lives. It is knowing him personally and enjoying daily fellowship with him. How does that happen? And how do we know it has happened to us? Well, John has a very simple answer to our question here. He says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. That is in verse 3. Not if we prayed a prayer. Not if we have walked an aisle or if we have repeated a prayer. But rather if we keep his commandments. Now that may sound more like the moral test more than the social test. But that, but that depends upon what, it, what he means by commandments. Is he talking about the Ten Commandments and our need to be obedient to God's moral laws? Probably not. You see, John uses the term command 14 times in this short letter. Whenever he uses it, he, 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 he uses it in the singular. It, 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 it always refers explicitly to Christ's command that his followers love one another. Most of the time when he uses it in the plural, in the, in the plural the, the context indicates the same thing. The only place where this is, this in, is in question is right here in, in chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. And however, I believe that even here the term commandments probably refers specifically to the commandments that Jesus addressed in, 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 in Matthew 22 when, 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 when a lawyer um, tried to, to trip him up and, and, and said to him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your, your neighbor as yourself. One of, on, these, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. 
evidence that this is what John has in mind is found in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, where we read his explicit definition of the commandment. He says, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. And of course, there is no contradiction between obedience to the Ten Commandments and loving one another. Perhaps both are intended, but the later is clearly the focus of the rest of our passage. Now in verse 4, we, we come to the first of the three whoever statements. Listen to what he says. He says, whoever says, I know him, that is, I know God, but does keep his commandment is a liar and the truth is not in him. The point is this. This is the point here. The point is that no claim of knowing God has any validity if the person making that claim does not obey his, com- his commandment of, to love his fellow believer. In other words, you cannot say you know God if you don't love your fellow believer. On the contrary, the person who says that is a liar and has no relationship to the truth. And those are tough words, aren't they? First of all, I think we have to understand that the author has in mind ongoing disobedience and not just a single act of disobedience here. The, the, The tense of the verbs he uses makes that clear. We will never arrive at a point of sinlessness this side of heaven. But it's the one whose life is characterized by disobedience, by lovelessness, who is called a liar. But he says more here. He adds, and the truth is not in him. I think that means that we should not go to such a person for truth, but rather to another source. Remember the words of Jesus in Revelation chapter 2 to the church in Ephesus. The, The church that was by all measure theologically sound. They, they dotted their theological I's and crossed their theological T's, but they lacked what accompanies sound theology. Listen to what Jesus says to them after commending them of their theological soundness and their ability to detect false teaching. He says to them in verse 4, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you heard at first. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2. He says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. I think the Apostle John would say to the followers of this man who says they love God, but they do not love their fellow brothers and sisters. He would say, look elsewhere for the truth. It doesn't matter how much truth you know, how much Bible you know. If you have not love for your fellow brothers and sisters, you are nothing. The clinging symbol. The fact is, as I observed many members of, 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 the, of, 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 of if, as John observes the, the members of this church, their lives were more broken here. Their lives didn't reflect the fact that they loved one another. 
But John's tone is not entirely negative. In, in verse 5, he makes the same point positively by stating the converse. He says, whoever keeps his word, that is whoever loves his fellow believer, in him truly the love of God or for God is perfected. Again, the tense of the verbs is important here. As John is talking about ongoing obedience, a life characterized by love for the brothers. The, the, the point seems to be that our professed love for, for, for God is proved to be real when we obey his command to love one another. The end of verse 5 makes a, a, a second affirmation about our knowledge for God. It says, by this we know that we are in him. And this is an advancement of verse 3. Uh, there we learn that uh, how we can know that we know God. Uh, here we are informed about how we can know that we are in him. That is organically connected to him. And then he offers his second whoever statement. Whoever argument. The second point here. Whoever says he abides in him or to walk in the same way in which he walked. And we see that in verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him, or to walk in the same way in which he walked. And let's read the second argument this way. In other words, no claim of being connected to God has any validity if the person making that claim does not walk in love as Jesus walked. In other words, whoever says that they are in God must be marked by Christ-like love. I hope that makes sense. You see, Jesus is not just our advocate and our substitute, as we learned last week in the opening verses of chapter 2. He is also our example. We, we have no right to claim to be in him or to pawn ourselves off as his disciples if we do not follow his example. Clearly, there are some ways in which it is impossible for us to, to walk as Jesus walked. We, we, we can't live without Jesus. We can't raise the dead. We can't um, um, die on the cross for the sins of the whole world. But we can love as Jesus loved. And frankly, I think that's exactly what walking as Jesus walked means here. No doubt, even that, that is a, a hard task. It's a, it's a formidable task. And none of us can do it perfectly. But this should be our bend, our, our goal, our intention. We should grow in that direction of loving one another, of walking as Jesus walked, of, 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 of displaying a Christ-like love towards one another. Now, before offering our third of, of his whoever sayings here, of these arguments that John makes, he gives us a brief interlude, a, a, a treatise on the commandment that is uppermost in his mind. It, it comes in the form of a paradox. It is new. It is the old commandment that is new. The old commandment that is new. He says, beloved, in verse 7, beloved, I'm writing to you a new commandment. But 
I'm not I'm, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment. John opens this section with the term beloved. This is the first of his six times he uses this term. Though some of the, the, the things he has to say will be difficult for them to hear, he wants them to know that he has great affection for them. You know, it's a, it's a lot easier to hear the truth from someone who loves us than from a stranger or someone whose genuine concern is in doubt. John identifies the commandment here that he has in mind as, as not new, but old, yet at the same time, new. As we try to unravel his meaning, let, let us ask first, in what sense is this commandment old? First of all, it's old chronologically. It is old chronologically. In other words, it not only goes back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, but long before the time of Jesus. One can go all the way back to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The, 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 the book of the law of Moses, where in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18, it says clearly, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. And when you combine it with Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, that says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. What you have there, you have the great commandment, almost exactly as Jesus stated it in Matthew chapter 22. So the commandment John is talking about here is as old as revealed faith. But second, it is, oh, it is also old in their experience. In their experience. John continues in verse 7, the old commandment is the word that you have heard. They were converted under the gospel message. And both Jesus and the apostles made it clear that the gospel is not just a string of theological affirmations. It must be fleshed out in love for one another. The, the, the command to love is the heart and soul of the message they heard and believed. And then nevertheless, John also acknowledges that the commandment to love is in some sense new. The question is, how is it new? In what sense is it new? First of all, it is new in emphasis. It is new in emphasis. The love was certainly not absent in the Old Testament period, but it may be safe to say that it was not the focus. The, the focus was on God's holiness and the need of God's people to be obedient to his law. And I'm not saying that Jesus minimized the importance of holiness or obedience, but it is only fair to see that he placed an entirely new emphasis on love in his teachings. And the apostles followed suit. In fact, they taught, they taught constantly on the subject. We are all familiar with the love chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But the themes of love uh, of that chapter are all found in many other places in the New Testament. So it is 
new in emphasis. And secondly, it is new in example. It is new in example. Look at verse 8. It goes on to say, Yet I am writing to you a new commandment. Is truth is sin in him and you. The truth of this commandment is seen in him and is seen in you. In other words, in the Old Testament, the truth about love was taught clearly enough, but it was not modeled very well. In Jesus, however, it was modeled perfectly. I like the way Warren Wesby expressed this. This is what he says. He says, it is encouraging to think of Jesus' love for the 12 disciples. How they must have broken his heart again and again as they argued over who was the greatest or tried to keep people from seeing their master. Each of them was different from the others. And Christ's love was broad enough to include each one in a personal understanding way. He was patient with Peter's impulsiveness, Thomas's unbelief, and even Judas's treachery. When Jesus' command, when Jesus commanded his disciples to love one another, he was only telling them to do as he had done. I'm encouraged to see that John goes on to indicate that at least some of his church members have also begun to model love well. He says the truth of this commandment is seen in Jesus and it is also seen in you. It is new in the sense of example. But not only that, lastly, it is new in the extent to which it reaches. You see, the Old Testament made it clear that God's people are to love their neighbors. But Jesus went further by, defi- by, by redefining neighbor as anyone who needs our compassion and help, irrespective of status or race. This would have been shocking to many Jewish people. For, for their rabbis viewed a, the sinner as a person whom God wished to destroy. They would say this. They would say there's joy in heaven when one sinner is obliterated from the earth. But Jesus was the friend of sinners and taught that there's joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. The rabbis, on the other hand, taught the Gentiles were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. But in Jesus, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus alluded to this major change of perspective. He said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Love became new in Jesus because he widened its boundaries until there were none outside its embrace. Most of us are capable of showing love to those who are lovable, right? Even that is the challenge at times due to our natural selfishness. But we are generally pretty good at reaching out to those who are like us, those who are successful, those who have something to offer us in return. 
But, but, but if we look at Jesus, he spent the vast bulk of his time reaching out to the poor, the needy, the outcast, the broken, the hurting. Again, this commandment is new in the length to which it goes. It is new in the length to which it goes. No, no, no personal opposition, no lack of response could turn Jesus' love to hate. The Gospel of John records that he came to his own in John chapter 1, but his own did not receive him. Yet, even though they did not receive him, we see again, as the Bible tells us, that he wept over the city of Jerusalem. And instead of calling down judgment from heaven on his executioners, he prayed, Father, forgive them, they not know, they, for they know not what they are doing. This is the length to which love will go. Now let us move on to the third whoever argument. In verse 9, listen to verse 9, what he says. He says, whoever says he's in the light and, his, and hates his brother is still in darkness. Let me express it this way. In other words, what John is saying here, he says, no claim of being in the light has any validity if the person making that claim does not love his fellow believer. In other words, you cannot say that you are in the light of the gospel if you have no love for your fellow brothers and sisters. The theme of light and darkness is common in, in, in one of John's gospel writings. In the first chapter of his gospel, he refers to Jesus as the light that gives light to every man. Then in the first chapter of 1 John, in verse 5, he stated, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. A few verses later, he writes, If we walk in the light, he is in the light. If, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You see, light is the realm God dwells in. And darkness is Satan's dominion, Satan's domain. Likewise, light, light describes the status of a true believer, while darkness describes the status of the unbeliever. The, the, the person John has in view here claims to be in the light. That is, he claims to be a believer basking in the sunshine of a relationship with God. But at the same time, he hates his brother. That's an oxymoron, right? A person cannot be in the light and hate his brother at the same time. It's a contradiction in terms. There is no way that you can be exposed to the light of the gospel and claim to be walking in the light while you have hate for your fellow brothers and sisters. Maybe we can bring this a little closer to home by asking some hard questions. Think about it. Is there someone here at CBC you really can't stand? Do you seethe when you think about something that someone said to you 
or audit or did to you or, or some decision that he he made that negatively impacted you do you secretly wish something bad would happen to that person Before we excuse ourselves prematurely by denying that we hate anyone, it is important to observe that hating one's brother or sister does not necessarily imply getting red in the face or cursing him out or threatening him with bodily harm. In the Bible, the term hate often means to love less. For example, in Genesis chapter 29, verse 31, we read, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he gave her a child. Now, Leah was Jacob's wife, right? But not his favorite wife. He didn't hate her. He just loved her less than he loved Rachel. There are many other examples of that usage of the term hate. I would suggest that many of the passages which speak of our hating our brother might as well be repeated as meaning to love him less than we should or to refuse to show our love. If you're like me, that's much more convicting. I've never had much of a problem with active hate, but there are many for whom I fail to show love or whom I ignore because I'm too busy. In verse 10, as is John's custom here, he follows up a statement with its converse. He says, um, having declared that a profession of faith without love reveals a life of darkness, he now makes it clear that a life of love reveals a life of light. He says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. In other words, Demonstrating love for others is evidence that the person is so living, um, the, the person so living has a, has a life characterized by walking in the light. He, he is not phony, he is not fake, no, not living a lie. Rather, he is a person of integrity and genuineness. And if he has passed other tests, he is a true Christian. Furthermore, it says, in him, there is no cause for stumbling. The, the idea of stumbling may be viewed in two ways, in one of two ways. First, it may mean that the, the one who loves his brother will not cause others to stumble. And this reminds us of Paul's extensive teaching on how we should be willing to limit our liberty by love for our brothers so we don't cause them to stumble. Or second, it may mean that the one who loves his brother will not himself stumble. Both are true, but the latter is most likely the intention of John in this verse. Dr. James Boyce makes makes an intriguing suggestion in his commentary on these verses. He says, John introduces the important idea that our love and hatred not only reveal whether we are already in the light or in the darkness, but actually contribute towards the light and the dark, or the darkness in which we, are already, we already are. What he's saying here is that the one who walks in the light has more, more light day by day. The more you walk in the light, 
the more light you have. The one who walks in darkness is increasingly darkened. And that means to be born out of, uh, that seems to be born out of um, verse 11 when it says, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Do you see the progression here? The one who hates uh, 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 rather than loves is viewed first as in darkness, then as walking in darkness, and finally he is blinded by the darkness. When a man has hatred in his heart, his powers of judgment are obscured. He, he cannot see an issue clearly. William Buckley says, uh, he puts it this way, he says, no man is fit to give a verdict on anything while he has hatred in his heart. It is not uncommon to find a person opposing a good proposal simply because he disliked the person who made it. Uh, you see it in government, right? When one party uh, brings up a, a, a good proposal that can be good for the country, the other party opposes it because they hate the other party. Not because the idea is wrong in itself. We see it, unfortunately, as well, in church meetings. A lot of church meetings, in many Christian churches, you find that one comes with an idea, the other opposes it, not because of the idea itself, but because of the person who raised the idea. No man is fit to give a verdict on anything while he has hatred in his heart. In conclusion, brothers and sisters, we, we criticize religious groups that stress the moral test above everything else, that the Ten Commandments or some moral code must be kept. We, we rightly call them legalists and refer to their view as works salvation. We, we criticize other religious groups that stress the social test above everything else, that, that we must love one another. We, we rightly call them humanists or refer to their view as social gospel. But frankly, our greatest danger may be that we have championed the, theologic, the, the theological test above everything else, that one must simply believe the right things. You see, Brethren, these three tests stand or fall together. We, we, we don't have the option of emphasizing one to the exclusion of, 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 of either of the other two. We must stand firm on the theological truth of the incarnation, the death <coughs> and resurrection of Christ for our sin, but we must also affirm the need for a transformed life and the necessity for a transformed love. Only when all three of those are present, we will enjoy both assurance and security. It is only when they are intertwined that we, that we can enjoy assurance and security in Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, as we consider your word, we find ourselves every single time 
that we fall short of your standards. But we are grateful for Jesus Christ who says, without me you can do nothing. We thank you that Christ has fully obeyed you. That he has lived a life that we could not live and died a death that we deserved so that we can stand before you. Having a righteousness not of our own that is found in the law, but a righteousness that is in Christ found by faith in him. We thank you that you've given us uh, the, the, the grace and you've empowered us with the Holy Spirit to walk in your way. May our belief in you, our faith in you be reflected in our lives, living in a way that glorifies and exalts you and also be reflected in our love for one another. In the precious name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we pray this. Amen.